Thank you, Bill. The scripture that uh, Bill just read highlights two episodes of women ministering to Jesus. The woman whose sins were many but who loved Jesus deeply was forgiven her sins. But you'll notice in the text in verse 50, she was saved not because of her love, but she was saved because of her faith, that she ministered to Jesus. And then immediately in chapter 8, we see women at the other end of the social spectrum who are caring for the needs of the disciples as well as for Jesus. We see uh, mentioned Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and quote, many others who were contributing to their support. And there is masculine plural out of their private means. And the word there is feminine plural. Both cases, the woman and the women ministering to Jesus, are, were very countercultural in the first century. In fact, the Bible has always been a countercultural book, but now it's countercultural in the opposite direction. Uh, so that people who agree with the Bible in its social positions are publicly shamed. Our culture shouts, you know, how can you believe that? How can you believe? Uh, that marriage is only to be between a man and a woman. How can you believe and say that sex outside of marriage is morally wrong? How can you believe that acting on same-sex attraction is a sin? How can you believe that Christians are only to marry other Christians? How can you believe that children can be spanked when needed? How can you believe that a man is to lead his home, that a pastor is to be a male, all kinds of issues are a part of that countercultural push, whether they should be or not. And in order to see how countercultural the Bible actually is, especially related to women, we have to ask the question counter to what culture? So I want to give you a little information this morning. Some of it is uh, historical information. For example, the Old Testament was very supportive and protective of women against the repressive cultures of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Canaanites. The New Testament was very supportive and protective of women against the repressive cultures of the Greeks, the Romans, and the Jews. And I'll explain what I mean about the Jews in a moment. Today, the Bible is being accused of being countercultural in the opposite direction, the Bible is seen as being oppressive of women. And I'm going to push back against that charge today. Today in our series on Church 101, we obviously come to the topic of women in the church, and specifically here at Signal Mountain Bible Church. And yeah, our views are countercultural, and they will become only more so as decades pass. We do believe that elders are to be men. And since the preaching pastor is an elder, the preaching pastor should be a man. We have reasons for that, which we'll look at. But we also have women engaged in all sorts of ministries here. And I hope that after this study, you, you lady, our ladies will be encouraged and challenged to continue and to enlarge the ministries that you are engaged in. That as both men and women, we look at Scripture and ask this question, does the way I live and the role that God has given me show Christ? Does, 
does the way I live and the role that God has given me advance the gospel? Does it uh, challenge people? Does it ask, invite people to, be, to, to come to Jesus? Does it show God's story? Am I letting the culture tell me that I'm oppressed or am I letting God tell me to flourish? Now, there, there is more to be said about this topic than I will be able to say today. Uh, if you have any questions that I don't address, I, I encourage you to email me uh, at lewis at smbible.com. Oh, Gary. Um, but over and over again, the Bible speaks against cult, the culture in which it is embedded in order for men and women created in God's image to flourish. And I want to begin by describing that cultural contrast, the countercultural nature of the Bible. And I'm going to begin by talking a little bit about Israel's neighbors. First of all, the Babylonian neighbors. And this is some information from the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, this is about the time, this information is from about the time of Abraham. Regarding family life, just some bullet points. Uh, men contracted marriages for women who had no say. Unmarried women did not inherit property. They were done when the husband died. Uh, the, um, widows as well, I'm sorry. Husbands could divorce the wife for any reason at any time, and then she's out with no support. If, if the wife charged the husband with adultery and it was not proven, she was executed by drowning. If the wife was shown to be immodest, she was executed by drowning. If, she did not, if the wife did not manage the household funds properly, she could be executed by drowning. They liked water, the Babylonians. Regarding religious life, women were per permitted to be the priestesses of the Babylonian uh, pantheon. But what that meant was that they were temple prostitutes. And the men communed with their deities through the bodies of the women. Okay, that's the Babylonians. The Assyrian neighbors. This is from about the time of Moses. Because society keeps getting better and better, right? Regarding family life, widows, again, could not inherit. Husband could divorce his wife for any reason, same thing. Uh, a woman con convicted of adultery was punished by, um, you know, and I really can't mention what they did to her here. In religious life, uh, again, sacred prostitution. Canaanite religion. This is roughly the time of Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Same thing in every category. Then you come to the Old Testament. In family, and I just want you to see, and against that backdrop, what God's Word taught. The husband, the father, father, was the head of the home, but he was accountable to God for that stewardship. The mother and father together were equal in authority over the children. Here's an interesting fact. Fourteen times in the Old Testament, the husband named the child. Twenty-four times, the mother named the child. Twenty-six times, rather. Fathers were generally involved in arranging marriages for both sons and daughters, but it seems that the women of the family, both the wife and the daughter, were consulted about the choice. The inheritance was usually given to male heirs, but they were required by law to take care of the females in the family, 
And in some cases, women did inherit, in some cases, alongside their brothers. The penalty for adultery was the same for both men and women. You see how countercultural that is. Regarding civil life, most offices were held by men, but not exclusively. In the book of Judges, Deborah was one of the judges. And there's, it's presented as, as there's no incongruity between her dual roles as judge and wife. In religious life, women did not function as priests. But here's the big thing. Neither did most men. <laughs> Eleven out of twelve did not, because they were not of the tribe of Levi. And even then, only a small group of Levites became actual priests. But when women did participate in temple services and ceremonial feasts as worshipers, as worshipers, and we see women who were prophetesses, Miriam, Huldah. And I know questions can be raised about this or that event in the Old Testament, but here's the big thing. And this is just as an example, if you, if you take the horrible crime of rape. The reason a woman's rape was avenged among Israel's neighbors was not because she was violated, but because she was the woman's, the man's property and his rights were violated. But in the Old Testament, the woman was to be protected because she is the image of God. This was huge. The husband and father was the head of the home. The temple leadership was male, but women were valued because they were in the image of God, equal beings in the image of God, equal worshipers, and their role was seen to be complementary and was not to be abused. Okay, that's Old Testament. Let's move to New Testament. The first century world. So you've got Greek culture, you've got Roman culture, you've got Jewish culture, and you can see those three languages in the sign that was placed on the top of the cross. Greek, Roman, and Jewish culture. Greek culture, temple prostitutes again. Greek wives were expected to be faithful, did not apply to the husbands. But wait a minute, Gary, wait a minute. Uh, in Greek religion and mythology, they had goddesses. They're, that's exalted, right? Well, the problem is the goddesses were presented as either being ignorant or deliberately scheming and were deadly to men. Think Pandora's box and the evil that was unleashed on the world. And, and the most popular goddess, Athena, was viewed as more masculine than feminine. What about Roman culture? There were more freedoms socially for women in Roman culture. Women could inherit estates. They could manage finances themselves. We see this with Lydia in Acts 16, uh, with Prisca, who had a tent-making business with her husband, Aquila. Some women were highly educated. Others who did not have the opportunity to learn, usually because of poverty, uh, were not educated. Wives were expected to be faithful, but the Romans didn't expect that to apply to husbands. And then we come to Judaism. And this is not Old Testament truth. This is Jewish culture as it had developed in the first century. This is what Jesus was trying to... to, to um, uh, uh, be, he was trying to show who he was in this culture. The Jerusalem temple had a court of the women. That was not God's design. In synagogue worship, women and men sat separately. Women were not expected to learn. In fact, this was later enshrined in a saying from the Talmud, and I'm quoting, 
it is better that the words of the law be burned than that they should be given to a woman. Yeah. The reason the husband was the head of the home is because the woman is, quote, inferior to the man in every way. That's Josephus. Yeah. Women were not allowed to give testimony in courts of law. The only good news in Judaism uh, is that fidelity in marriage, faithfulness in marriage, was expected of both husband and wife. So that, that was good. The Old Testament roles of women that God used, like Deborah, Jael, Huldah, Miriam, and so forth, all of those were ignored or slandered, reinterpreted. And the fact that God created women as his image bearers was ignored. The Jews of the first century had absorbed the practices from the surrounding culture and were hardened to their own scriptures. Listen to this. You've got to hear this. This is a, a blessing, a threefold blessing from Judah ben Eli, one of the rabbis, famous rabbis. He said this, quote, Blessed art thou who hast not made me a Gentile, who hast not made me a woman, who hast not made me a slave. That's the blessing. And then we come to Jesus in the New Testament. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus dragged people back to the Bible. And then beyond, God created women in his image, male and female, equal in persons, in essence, complementary in functions. Jesus initiated conversations with women. He showed compassion to them. He taught them individually. He taught them in groups. He defended their need and right to learn, even against other women. Think Mary and Martha. And they were devoted to Jesus. They wanted to touch him, wash his feet, anoint him. And a group of them followed him, ministering to his needs, as we read in Luke 8. Now, if you catch what we've said so far, what I've just described about Jesus and women is very unusual for that time. You know what? When Jesus was arrested, the women were the ones who did not flee. They were the last to leave the cross. They were the first to be at the tomb. They were the first resurrection witnesses in a culture that did not accept the witness of women in a court of law. However, Jesus did not challenge the biblical roles of men and women either in the home or in the temple. None of the 12 apostles were women. None of the women in his entourage were sent out preaching. Okay? Jesus challenged everything, but he didn't challenge that. Instead, he brought a biblical balance to honoring women alongside men as equal worshipers, equal in persons, different in function, equal in value. Saul of Tarsus was saved. And Saul of Tarsus was raised in that Jewish culture that I just described to you. And when he was saved, his Jewish cultural world got turned upside down, or right side up, really. Do you remember the threefold blessing of the rabbi Judah ben Eli? Blessed art thou who has not made me a Gentile, who has not made me a woman, who has not made me a slave. Listen to the echo of that. Paul would have known about that. Listen to Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus.
the gospel levels the playing field. Now, I, I want to make, before I move to, uh, to the next section, I want to make some parenthetical remarks about leadership in the home because the biblical themes are similar. The New Testament affirms that the husband and the wife have complementary roles, equal in value, different in function. But here's what's radical in the New Testament. Whenever wives were told to submit to their husband's leadership, I want you to notice this. First, in every case, no exceptions, every case, they are told to submit to their own husbands. That word own is added every time. Not to husbands. It's not a male-female thing. It's a husband-wife thing. In the other cultures, it was a male-female thing, not biblically. Second, in every case, the husband is given strong warning not to abuse his role. For example, in Ephesians 5, there are three verses for the wife and her role, and then there are eight verses for the husband including love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Self-sacrificial, I mean self-sacrificial love. 1 Peter 3, 7 encourages husbands, understand your wife. Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, lest your prayers be hindered. God is saying, if you abuse your role as a husband, don't bother praying to me. I don't want it. I don't hear you. In fact, go away. If any husband abuses his wife, and I, and I, I, I want to say this too, um, this is a little aside. If any, there are a lot of people who will be hearing this, there are a lot of people here, if any husband abuses his wife, let us know. We will call the police with you. We will stand beside you. And uh, I'm going to ask Judith and Bethany to stand. These two ladies, if you, if you don't want to come to the elders, these two ladies have been through some training at our request to help in those kinds of cases as people to talk to. Thank you. So, kind of a downer, I know, <laughs> to mention that. But Jesus doesn't like it when people abuse his bride. So... Uh, and the husband is always given strong warning not to abuse his role. Third, in both church and home, Scripture clearly describes the husband's role and the elder's role in both cases as servant leadership. Servant leadership, not dictatorship. Fourth, in both the church and home, male leadership is seen as a matter of function, not superiority elsewhere in scripture we see the analogy of the trinity the spirit is submissive to christ the spirit in christ are submissive to the father they're each equally god but different in function within the triunity of the godhead and by the way the analogy from the trinity is not my analogy it's the bible's analogy in first corinthians 11 equality of being difference in function within the trinity now, there are a lot of passages that are relevant to this topic 
uh, that we're, we could talk about. And uh, uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, or chapter 3. We could look at 1 Corinthians 14, but there Paul was dealing with a situation that I do believe was unique to Corinth. We could catalog every case of elders in the Bible. They are, yes, male. Uh, in both 1 Timothy and Titus, the elder is to be husband of one wife. Here's an interesting passage in Acts chapter 20, verse 30. When Paul is warning the elders of the church at Ephesus, he says this, quote, Be on guard, for from among your own selves, he's talking to you, know, you as elders, men will arise speaking perverse things, false doctrine. And it's interesting that the word men there is not the, not the generic term mankind, which includes women. It's the Greek word males will arise. So, yes, that's, that, there are several passages we could, could look at. But the main text that I want us to look at in the time we have left is 1 Timothy chapter, chapters uh, 2 and 3. And I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions you might have about this passage. But I believe that this is Paul's normative book of church order, not just for Ephesus, but for all churches. Take a look at chapter 3, uh, verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. So this is how one ought to conduct oneself in the household of God. It's an abstract infinitive indicating universality, uh, not, not a, a personal verb indicating particularity, not how you ought to conduct yourself at Ephesus. And, and there, he uses a term of strong necessity. One must do this. This term is used 24 times in the New Testament. Every time it refers to strong necessity that is normative. So, uh, let's, so what we have in 1 Timothy is Paul's book of church order. And uh, we haven't gone through the passage that we're going to be looking at for a few moments today. So I want you to back up to chapter 2, verse 8. Again, I'm jumping into the middle of a context, but I want you to see what he says. Chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And say, men in every place, again, universality, not just there at Ephesus, to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, at that point, you say, wait, wait a minute, Gary. <laughs> what does that mean? Every phrase in verses 9 through 15 has had millions of words written about it. Almost every countless interpretation has been countless interpretations have been given and we could talk about gold gold braided hair and what that signified but here's the deal verses 9 and 10 basically challenge the priorities of women to focus not on making a statement with their appearance as their priority but on making a statement with their character he's not saying 
be ugly. But he's saying, where is your priority? Is it on your appearance or is it with your character? I think this was an issue for women in the first century and in Ephesus. I think it's an issue for women in the 21st century, given all the things that you are bombarded with. And then Paul says this in verses 11 through 15. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And he he speaks about creation. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And then he refers to the fall. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into into transgression. And then he speaks uh, to the issue of the differences between men and women. But women will be preserved or kept safe through the bearing of children. I believe pointing to the one thing that defines the difference between what women and men, uh, that what men cannot do. If they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. That's the end of chapter 2. Here's how I understand these verses. God created Eve in his image as complementary to Adam, to fit with Adam. That's what the Old Testament refers to. In the fall, Adam was the one who was primarily accountable before God, not Eve. She was deceived. He sinned with his eyes wide open. There are many nuances here, but it's kind of a negative argument. You see the guy that God holds account- held accountable? He's still accountable. Even in Genesis 3, God says, because you listened to the voice of your wife, and the point is not that he listened to her, but that he followed her lead when she didn't know she was wrong, but he did. Before the fall, Adam was accountable. In the fall, Adam was accountable. After the fall, Adam was accountable. So when you read passages on the husband's role in the home, He's the one whom God holds accountable. Now, sometimes accountability is not a lot of fun. Especially when God is the judge. You know what James 3.1 says? This This scares me to death. Let not many of you become teachers, brethren, knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. The only thing that scares me more than being a teacher is not being one when I believe God wants me to be. So, there's accountability here. And by the way, being silent in the church did not mean absolute silence. There's a different Greek word for that. Um, it, it, It meant not to be argumentative or disruptive while another person was speaking, which is a big problem at Corinth. For example, same word, Acts 21, verse 14, we read, Since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, saying, The will of the Lord be done. You got that? We fell silent, speaking. (laughs) What he means is we stopped arguing with him. You got that? Now, I would argue that in the context of 1 Timothy 3, as well as throughout the book of Acts and the epistles, the two most prominent features for elders in the local church are, number one, spiritual oversight of the direction of the church. 
And number two, which is the exercising authority. And number two, authoritative teaching. The teaching part, protecting against false doctrine. So there's spiritual oversight and there's doctrinal oversight. Those are the two things that we see uh, all the way through the book of Acts and the epistles, and we see them mentioned here in 1 Timothy 2. Now, at this point, Paul returns to the qualifications for elders who are accountable for the church. Look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2. It is a trustworthy statement. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer that must then be above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That requirement is not mentioned, uh, by the way, as uh, laid out for deacons. Skip down to verse 8. So you've got elders or overseers, same thing. In verse 8, deacons likewise. So again, referring to the office of the deacon, likewise. So the elder office is addressed. The deacon office is now about to be addressed. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, addicted, addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also be first tested, then let them serve as, deacon, as deacons if they're beyond reproach. And then you come to verse 11. Women must likewise, there's that word again, be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. There seems to be a one-to-one correspondence between the women and the male deacons on each point. Women are to be dignified. Deacons are men of dignity. Women are not malicious gossips. Deacons are not double-tongued. Women are temperate. Deacons are not to be addicted to wine or gain, uh, uh, money. Women are to be faithful in all things. Deacons are to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. There's a one-to-one correspondence here. I believe that the women described here are the female deacons. That may be radical to some of you. Um, The wording here would be one way when it says the women, and, and this word can be used to refer to wife, and some people think that refers to the wives of the deacons. The wording here would be one way to distinguish them from the male deacons. The Greek word for deaconess, diakonissa, was not coined and did not come into use until the second century. Some say that Paul was speaking to the deacons' wives, but that makes little sense. Paul often speaks of the wives with the words their wives or their own wives, and he doesn't use that terminology here. Besides, if he were referring to the wives of the deacons, where's the instruction for the wives of the elders? But if he's speaking of the office of a female deacon or deaconess, that fits perfectly. The qualifications, one-to-one correspondence. And it doesn't contradict 1 Timothy 2.12 because being a deacon is to fulfill a service office, not an office of spiritual oversight or exercising teaching authority. Here's an excerpt from a non-Christian governor, a Roman governor, Pliny, to the Emperor Trajan. It was written in 115 A.D. Pliny was, he was writing in Latin, and he wrote about two women who were being tortured 
And he calls them ministre, Latin for the Greek word deacon. Pliny was unable to understand what Christianity was about, why they worshiped Jesus, why they dedicated themselves to abstaining from evil. So he says this, quote, Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else, unquote. Now, back to 1 Timothy 3. Paul returns in verse 12 to those things that are unique for male deacons only. Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of one wife, good managers of their children and their own households. And then verse 13 possibly is just a general statement for all those who fill this office. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, now, you be the Bereans, and you study these things out to see whether or not they're so. But in this view, in Paul's book of church order, Paul speaks of elders, deacons, and then deaconesses. Where are the elderesses? He's already addressed that in chapter 2. They're not to exercise authoritative teaching over a man. Well, Gary... Um, why don't we have female deacons? We kind of do. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> For right now, they're called the WMC. But their functions include leadership over the things females de female deacons would do. 25 years ago we, uh, or so, we suggested to the ladies that maybe you should call yourselves deaconesses. Uh, but the ladies were against it because they didn't want that to be misunderstood by those outside of our church who were more f mostly familiar with Baptist churches where the deacons are in leadership roles, not service roles. So um, that was their choice at that time. But we, we, you know, we hope to address this better in the future. This is not the end of this topic. Uh, so Gary, how does all of this information, so what I'm saying is, Okay. Female elders, no. Male elders, male and female deacons or deaconesses, whatever term you would want to use. Um, how would this place, Signal Mountain Bible Church, and, and, and by the way, I'm just, I'm just going to say that the WMC, we'll just call them functionally deaconesses at this point. Um, not purely accurate, but close enough for... Yes, I'm sorry. Thank you. Yeah, the Women's Ministry Committee, WMC. Uh, you know, I, I have been so absorbed in this topic and studying this out and trying to get this right. I've been, okay, Lord, what am I, where do I need clarity? Thank you. Don't often look to Whit for clarity, but <laughs> he has a lot of spiritual gifts, but one of them is the gift of obfuscation. Uh, well, no, that will, maybe you should keep that on the tape. Uh, okay, so Gary, how, how does this place Signal Mountain Bible Church on the spectrum of evangelical churches? Because there are some good evangelical churches that have female elders and that have female preaching pastors. Uh, just down the road, Signal Mountain Presbyterian Church. Uh, Betsy and I were married in that church. 
we love that church. We love the staff in that church. They are our dear friends. But okay, so there's, there's a church that disagrees. They have a different practice. So how, how do we place ourselves on the spectrum, especially with churches that may disagree with what I've just said? Okay. And I, I, I'm going to uh, paint again with a broad brush here. That seems to be my modus today. But I'm going to use two terms that you will see if you do any reading at all on this topic. Egalitarianism, complementarianism. And you know, you know when church has been really good when there are two eight-syllable words. All right? Egalitarianism, complementarianism. Okay. Um, let's, let's put the egalitarians on this side, the complementarians on this side. Okay, on, and I don't want you to divide up. <laughs> on this side, with the egalitarians, there are those on this side, and, and there's a spectrum here, and there's a spectrum here. There are those on this side who believe that gender makes no difference at all in any role. role. Um, and you'll find this in mainstream denominations, uh, especially those on the liberal side of theology who do not care what the Bible says, period. They disagree. Uh, I mean, they would agree that the Bible says what I just said. But they would say that the Bible is outdated and wrong. Uh, it's wrong about this. It's wrong about homosexuality. It's wrong about every social issue that's countercultural. And men and women are really interchangeable in society, in business, in military, in church, and in home. And the radical forms of this, on the far end of that, that spectrum, the radical forms mute all differences between male and female so that they become interchangeable. And some now argue that men and women are so interchangeable that you don't need a mother and a father, but two mothers and two fathers will do just fine in the family. So that's the far end of that side. But then there are others who are closer in over here who hold to the truth of Scripture, but who believe that God in His providence has embedded some ethical time bombs within Scripture that made the direction of application of these texts clearer as culture changed. When Paul was talking about elders being male, that was then, this is now. Or maybe we have misinterpreted or misapplied those passages all these centuries. And there are thoughtful arguments that are that, uh, biblical arguments that they put forth. I do not believe they're compelling. Paul's rationale was not culture or education. His rationale was creation. That's how God set things up. But there are some people on this side of things who are very thoughtful, wonderful Bible-believing Christians, okay? Uh, just want to make sure that you get that. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, the complementarian, that men and women are complementary to each other in their roles. Um, this side says that God made us for a purpose that's different from each other, Women have a way of being human that men don't have and a way of disciple-making that men don't have and vice versa. 
God made those differences, and there to be differences of harmony, not conflict. Can both roles be abused? Definitely. But that's abusing God's plan, not fulfilling it. Here's an objection that some people raise. If you hold to the view that men are to be the leaders in the church and home, doesn't that lead to the abuse of women, like what I mentioned earlier? Doesn't it lead there? No. Ignoring God's word leads there. A major study was done of domestic violence, and it was done out of the University of Virginia. It was published by the University of Chicago Press, and the expect, it was about domestic violence in religious families. And the expected result was that Bible-believing men were the most abusive, because that's what you always hear. But this study dug deeper, and here's what they found. Quote, when coupled with church attendance, that is, men who take the Bible seriously and come to the church under the authority of Scripture, when coupled with church attendance, theologically conservative views about marriage and gender actually correlate with the lowest rates of violence. These men, I'm, I'm still quoting, these family men are consistently the most active and emotionally engaged group of fathers and the most emotionally engaged group of husbands in this study. They spend more time with their children. They are more likely to hug and praise their children. Their wives report higher levels of satisfaction with the appreciation, affection, and understanding they receive from their husbands. And they spend more time socializing with their wives. Unquote. So much for that stereotype. Complementarity. Let me add this too. Complementarity is not about competency. It's creation-based, not competency-based. Many women are omni-competent. Um, our church administrator is not named Carl, but Karen. The choir director for our Christmas choir was named Tracy. And she's the best. So, I don't have time to list, make a list of all the gifted women here. You could just line up. <laughs> but e e even with, so I'm over here right now. Even within the complementarian camp, there are two different views, not on what this means for the home and the church, but on what it means for society at large. And if, you, if, I, if I lose you right now, just hang in there with me. Broadly, those who are called broad complementarians, see, I told you, the terminology gets, gets uh, uh, complicated. Uh, broad complementarians believe that the differences between men and women in home and church should be the template for all differences, all interactions across society, including government and business. I disagree. Narrow complementarians believe that God's pattern of roles for home and church are about exactly what God said, home and church. They are not a template for all male-female interactions. Remember, wives to your own husbands. Why are they not a template? Because Scripture provides the guardrails for how we apply this. In Scripture, we see women doing everything but 
being an elder. Listen to this. In the Old Testament, we see women joining in the battle to save the people of God. I've already mentioned Huldah, Deborah, Jael. We could add Ruth and Naomi, overcoming the tragedies of life and death, continuing God's line. Esther over Haman, who was trying to destroy God's people. In the New Testament, Mary's self-sacrificial declaration to become the mother of the Messiah. Jesus uh, chose the 12 apostles, but there were other disciples. The word disciple means learner, and many of the women were disciples. They were learners at the feet of Jesus. We see women coming alongside to enable Jesus' ministry as patrons, as, I, as we looked in Luke chapter 8. When men abandoned Jesus at the arrest, as I mentioned before, women were there at the crucifixion and then at the tomb and were the first resurrection witnesses. At Pentecost, Joel prophesied that God would pour out my spirit on all flesh, on your, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. After Pentecost, throughout the book of Acts, we see the impact of Dorcas, quote, full of good works and acts of charity, the, her impact on an entire town. We see Mary, the, mer, the mother of John Mark in Lystra, we see Lydia of Thyatira in Philippi. We see Damaris, the Areopagite. We see four prophetesses in Acts 21. We see the exaltation of motherhood, the encouragement of younger widows to remarry, of older women to train younger women how to love their husbands and children. In Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche had problems with each other, but Paul says that they both, quote, labored side by side with me in the gospel, and he calls them fellow workers. We'd probably include Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois uh, and Eunice and Lois, who taught him the doctrines of the faith and equipped him to be the assistant to the apostle Paul and future pastor. After the cross, every believer, both male and female, is now called priest. Every believer. You can intercede in prayer directly with the Father based on the work of the Son. Both men and women are to contend for the faith against false teachers. Both men and women teach, are to teach the next generation in different ways, but both are engaged. Consider women in the ministry of Paul. Lydia was a rich businesswoman who was saved in Philippi who, quote, prevailed upon us, Luke writes, to stay with her. She provided refuge for Paul and the whole entourage. It's likely that the first church of Philippi was in her house. She responded to the gospel. She saw a need. She felt those, filled those needs. Strong personality, good businesswoman, made a difference. Romans 16, Paul lists twice as many men as women, but he commends twice as many women as men. He begins with Phoebe. Interestingly, he calls her a deacon. Now, some translate that servant, which is possible. That's what deacon meant. But others say, no. Nope deacon what did phoebe do she was entrusted to carry the epistle of rome of the romans epistle to the romans from corinth to rome 700 miles she had the means to do it she was one of paul's patrons but he knew she was faithful and conscientious and she made that trip happen mary trephana trephosa persis and the mother of rufus all commended in romans 16 the mother of Rufus was, was called the mother of the church. She, she was the mother to Paul and to the church, church mother. He commends Prisca, who, quote, risked her neck. 
That refers to beheading. For Paul, along with her husband, and also along with her husband, Aquila, she and Aquila together took the brain, Apollos, aside and instructed him, plural verb, they both did, in the way of God privately. He commends uh, Junia, who went to prison with her husband for the gospel, calls her a fellow prisoner. One biblical scholar observed this. European art galleries are filled with the paintings of the great men of Christendom, but heaven's art galleries may look a little different. Women were essential, indispensable for ministry to fulfill the Great Commission. And the fact that they didn't serve as, as elders at uh, uh, Corinth or Philippi did not make them less important, less trustworthy, less significant. They didn't feel oppressed. <laughs> they were flourishing. A relative of mine made this comment, quote, if it weren't for the women in my church, nothing would get done, unquote. To me, that was actually not a statement about the great women of the church. It was an indictment of the men of his church. Thankfully, that has never been the case here. We're thankful for the women and for the men who serve boldly and faithfully. And a biblical complementarianism is all about including women in ministry, not excluding them. Anyone who's been at Signal Mountain Bible Church for any length of time knows that women are very engaged in all the ministries here. They're not sitting around waiting to be told that they can minister. They're just doing it. They're diligent. They do things prayerfully. They do things with excellence. I, I am just blown away by the spiritual maturity and willingness to serve of the women in this church. Now, a good question for a husband to ask is, sweetheart, is there a ministry that you're drawn to that I am hindering? And the reason I say that is because this is where I struggle. Um, I do believe that it belongs to men to protect women. So look at Boaz. He's the, he's the template there. Chivalry. We step in between them and danger. That's what Christ did for his bride, the church. He stepped in between her and the consequences of sin. Took the hit. When Bessie wanted to go to Greece, working with trafficked women, uh, I struggled with that. I, I had visions of being on the street. I, I didn't know what the danger level would be, and so I went with her. <laughs> and, and then, you know, okay, it wasn't what I thought, or not wasn't what I feared. Um, but here's, here's the thing. When I read Romans 6, I want to protect my wife. But I have to do that in a way that does not hinder the ministry that God has called her to. We read here about women who risk their lives for the gospel. And we are all called. Ministry involves risk. We are all called to lay down our lives for Jesus. Right now, Christian husbands and wives together in the Wuhan province of China. I, I heard about this this morning on the radio coming up. Christian husbands and wives, the church, by the thousands, are ministering to the victims of the virus. And some of them are getting sick, and some of them are dying.
Why are they doing that? Because they're making a statement to the nation of China. Number one, Christians are not afraid of death. Number two, we love our neighbor. So God may call us, God may call men, God may call women to hard ministries. All ministry involves risk. Well, I, but I, so I struggle with that part, with the risk part, with my wife and with the ladies of the church. I hope that after hearing what women actually did in the Bible, that our ladies would be encouraged and challenged to continue what they're doing and enlarge upon it. Continue the ministries that you're engaged with both men and women, that we would look at Scripture and ask, does the way that I live and the role that God has given me show Christ? Does the way that I live and the role that God has given me advance the gospel? Does the way that I live and the role that God has given me teach and reach people? Does the way that I live and the role that God has given me advance Jesus' story? Lord, I thank you for your word. I ask, Lord, that uh, you would just take anything that is helpful in this study that has been said, and your spirit would sear it to our hearts, and it would become our tethering point for how we're to think about these things. And any word that was unhelpful, Lord, I pray that uh, you would just remove it from people's memories. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Your word is truth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.